Good morning, everybody. What better way to start the day than waking up to a nice breakfast and then having a lovely debate right afterwards? Uh, and I just have to say, wow, uh, a room full of food scientists. Uh, and with all of you here, I'm, I'm tempted to start out with a quick poll by applause to get you to clap in answer to this question. How many of you here actually had breakfast this morning? All right, a sizable number of you. If we had time for it, I would really like to keep going with that question and asking who had what and who consumed anything that we might call ultra-processed, because that's what this debate is going to be about. It's yes or no to this question, should we eat more processed food? And it is a pleasure for us at Intelligence Squared to be here before this group, the annual gathering of the Institute of Food Technologists. You are people who know food, you know the tech behind food processing, and of course, that is a broad term, so let's define a little bit what we're talking about in this debate. We are not talking about food that gets minimal processing. We're not talking about pasteurization or freezing or chopping or chilling. Uh, orange juice is not gonna be considered processed because it has to get squeezed, even though that is a process. But we're also not going to be hearing anybody making a case for so-called junk food. Nobody is here to defend chips and lollipops because that is really an easy one. Instead, the ultra-processed food that we're gonna be talking about is food made up of numerous ingredients combined by ever-advancing technology so that it will taste good and look good and deliver nutrition and fit in a package and be convenient and last a long time. And most importantly, it is intended to play a solid role in our overall diets. The debaters are here to make the case for and against having those foods in our diets as, say, a, a net social good or not. And importantly, they are here to persuade you that they are making a strong case. And that means we want to know where you will stand on this question before the debating even begins. And so for that reason, we're going to ask you to vote to tell us how you would answer the question, should we eat more processed foods? What do you think? Go to iq2us.org. That's iq, the number two, us.org. You will get to a multiple choice field where you answer yes, no, or undecided on the question, should we eat more processed foods? And after we've heard the debate, we're gonna ask you to vote again, and we will take the temperature of the room to see how your opinion might have changed over the course of the debate. Uh, we're gonna keep that vote open for a few more minutes. Uh, and what we're looking for is to find out which side changes the most minds. And while you're doing that, I would like to ask you to meet our debaters. First, arguing that we should eat more processed foods and joining us remotely, Amy Webb, futurist and author of The Genesis Machine. Let's please welcome her. Hi, everyone. And Amy's partner, let's welcome to the stage, Michael Gibney, professor of food and nutrition and former president, Nutrition Society. And opposing them, arguing on the other side that we should not eat more processed foods, here is Marion Nessel, academic and author of Food Politics. Please welcome Marion to the stage. And her partner is Kevin Hall, nutrition and metabolism scientist for the National Institutes of Health. Kevin Hall, welcome to the stage. So our debate will go in three rounds and the first round will be opening statements by each debater in turn. They each get three minutes and up first to argue yes to the question, should we eat more processed foods? We're gonna go first to Amy Webb, who again is joining us remotely. Amy, it's your turn. Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. I'm so sorry I can't be there with you in person for this important debate. I'm on my last day of quarantine. 
I want to start by saying words matter. In the past few years, we've experienced mind-warping, soul-crushing amounts of change. Uh, you know, soul-crushing amount of change in inflation, political upheaval, new open discussions about gender and sexuality, and a global pandemic that just won't seem to end. The amount of change at this level, it results in a massive amount of new data. And as a result of that, neurological overload. Our brains don't like all of this new data. Our brains crave structure. Uh, they crave order. So we default to labels. Labels are what help us create order out of chaos to resolve the messiness. But labels obscure nuance, and labels help to inflame cognitive biases. If we've learned nothing over the past couple of years, we've seen this happen time and time again throughout all areas of our society. Labels validate our cherished beliefs, even if those beliefs are wrong. Labels help us find our tribes, which then amplify those cherished beliefs and generate echo chambers from which it can be very challenging to escape. We forget that labels are constructs and that they leave little room for context and interpretation. Today, we're gonna to be talking about ultra-processed or highly processed foods. And we need to be really careful about those labels because words matter. There's a labeling system in place called NOVA. It was developed in Brazil. There are four categories. Group one refers to unprocessed natural foods. These are edible parts of plants and animals. The idea is we're cooking these things at home, we've sourced them locally and they're wholesome. Group four foods, that's what we're talking about today, these are ultra processed. That sounds ominous, that label. These are packaged snacks, these are reconstituted meat products, these are frozen foods, these are what very much sounds like a demonic food group. When we talk about foods using these labels, our brains immediately make a value judgment. Group four is irresponsible and unforgivable. But if we zoom out and challenge our cherished beliefs, that's why we're having this debate after all, there are three compelling reasons to say yes. The first has to do with classification. I've got whole grain bread in my kitchen. It's mostly seeds. I bought it in a store. Now, technically, this is classified as ultra-processed, um, but it is full of great nutrients, it's low in fat, it's high in complex carbohydrates. Athletes rely on this bread as a nutritious source of fuel. This bread is contraband, according to this label. At the same grocery store where I bought the bread, there's a bakery, and at that bakery, they make delicious brioche that is from scratch, that is minimally processed, and it's nutritionally void. It gives me a headache, it gives me stomach aches. Um, there are other reasons to vote yes for this that have to do with interpretation, and application, which we'll get into during the, the discussion and during the closing remarks. But I just want you to keep in mind that, that labels matter. If we think about processed foods and we can expand our definitions, of course we should vote yes for this, for this resolution. To vote no would be to deny us optionality. Thank you, Amy Webb. Our next debater is arguing no to the question, and that is Marion Nestle Marion. The floor is yours. 
Hello, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. Um, I think that ultra-processed foods are the most important nutrition concept to come along since vitamins. And I say this because I talk about this from a public health standpoint. Um, I'm interested in public health. Obesity and overweight are the most important public health nutrition problem in America today. The CDC says that 74% of American adults are overweight or obese, 40% meeting the criteria for obesity. And we need to look at what that's about. And one of the things it's about is eating more calories. Uh, obesity rates started to increase in 1980, and um, between 1980 and 2000, the number of calories in the food supply increased by nearly 1,000. It went from about 3,000 calories to 4,000 calories a day, and people began eating more calories. And we need to look at why. And part of the reason for that was that the... Uh, was that corporations had to respond to the shareholder value movement, which was a movement that required corporations to make returns to stockholders their very first priority. The food industry got hit hard by that because of the 4,000-calorie-a-day problem. It's hard to sell food in that kind of environment. So food companies began making new products that were irresistible, delicious, um, inexpensive to produce, and extremely profitable. What's important to understand about ultra-processed foods is that they are a very specific category of um, of foods, and this specific category by now has been associated in at least a thousand experiments. Uh, since 2009, when the concept was developed, at least a thousand experiments, some of them very well done, some of them systematic reviews and meta-analyses, have demonstrated a very close association of consumption of ultra-processed foods with obesity, which, as we know, is a risk factor for type 2 diabetes, coronary heart disease, morbidity, mortality, and these days, COVID-19. So a major public health priority is to reduce intake of ultra-processed foods, not eliminate them entirely, but reduce them. This is a challenge to the food industry, and I recognize that it is, um, but you're not, I realize that you're not a public health agency, but you need to take this concept seriously. We need to reduce intake of ultra-processed foods. Thank you. Thank you, Marian Nessel. So you've heard the first two opening statements, and now we go on to the third, arguing yes in answer to the question, should we eat more processed foods? Here is Michael Gibney. Michael Gibney, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's nice to be here. Uh, they tell me that I shouldn't eat low-fat spreads or margarines that are high in fat and low in trans because they're ultra-processed. They contain additives. Where I come from, these products have lowered blood cholesterol by 50% and made a very significant contribution to reducing cardiovascular disease. They also tell me that commercial toddler food is ultra-processed. We shouldn't feed it to our children. And we'll ask them later why, because I don't understand. The people who promote ultra-processed foods always talk about natural. Well, let me give you some examples of how natural is not always great. In the United States, you fortify your flour with folic acid. 
You don't add the folate that's in present in foods in the breakfast foods you had this morning because that folate is very poorly absorbed. So what the brave scientists did was they took a folate from plant foods and they lobbed off two little molecules. They invented a thing called folic acid. It's rapidly absorbed, rapidly transformed into the um, effective metabolite, and it has reduced the incidence of spina bifida by 50%. Spina bifida is a disease that confines people to wheelchairs, doubly incontinent. So that's, that's, a, that's a win-win. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared US. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared US. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate. Now, our health of our heart and our brains requires omega-3 fats, and these are derived from fatty fish. The fatty fish dine on marine algae. But with declining fish stocks, the environment couldn't sustain a global supply of these fatty acids. So instead, the smart engineers took the algae out of the marine, out of the oceans, grew them in big bioprocessing units, feed the output to farmed fish, and hey presto, problem again solved. Now turning to food additives, they tell me that lecithin is uh, found in these spreadable fats is bad for my gut, it will, it will erode the lining of the gut. A recent French study said, showed that from industrially prepared foods, the intake of lecithin is 50 milligrams. Now, ladies and gentlemen, one hen's egg, one hen's egg contains three times that amount. I had two eggs for breakfast and I feel good. Um, I just want to finish by saying that the future will demand plant-based foods more and more. And a recent study looked at the, the proportion of ultra-processed foods in the diets of omnivores, flexivores, vegetarians, and vegans. And they found that as you moved upwards in the groups uh, consuming most plant-based foods, ultra-processed foods went up. Very simply, just like you can't make an omelette without cracking eggs, you can't make plant-based foods without processing, processing engineering and processing aids. Thank you. Thank you, Michael Gibney. And our final debater will be arguing no in answer to the question, should we eat more processed foods? Please welcome Kevin Hall. Thanks very much. You know, if this debate had been held five years ago, I probably would have been arguing for the other side. You see, I'd spent my career at the National Institutes of Health studying the effects of different nutrients on the human body, things like swapping carbs versus fat, how that affects people with obesity. And then I heard about this new categorization of foods called the NOVA categorization system that basically said, nutrients, you guys are living in the dark ages. That's not interesting. That's not important anymore. It's really about the purpose and extent of processing. And I thought that was nonsense. It was anti-science, it seemed like to me. You know, of course it's about nutrition, right? Nutrition and nutrients, like, duh, those things are related. And so, you know, I asked the folks, I'm particularly interested in obesity, what is it that you think about these ultra-processed foods that's causing obesity? And they said, well, it's the salt, the sugar, and the fat, and the low amounts of fiber. I said, aha, you just named a bunch of nutrients. You can't have it both ways. The debate is over. Well, you know, scientists can't be satisfied with just a win on a rhetorical debate. One of the things that we can actually do is design an experiment. 
And so that's what I did. Uh, we, with my colleagues at the NIH, we designed an experiment where we brought in 20 men and women to live with us at the NIH Clinical Center for a month. And we designed two diets that were matched for the salt, the sugar, the fat, the fiber, the carbs. We asked people, uh, we randomized them to two groups. One group started a very highly ultra-processed food that was matched for the salt, the sugar, the fat, and the fiber. And another group ate a diet that had 0% ultra-processed food. Basically asked them, eat as much or as little as you want. And after two weeks, we swapped them. And basically, the idea was, if it was about the nutrients, then there should be no difference in how many calories these people ate. And I would be right once again. However, I was drastically wrong. When these people were eating the ultra-processed diet, despite being matched for these nutrients of concern, they ate 500 calories per day more. They gained weight, and they gained body fat. Whereas when they were eating the other diet, the unprocessed diet, they were losing weight and losing body fat. So now we don't know what the mechanism of that is. And as a scientist, I'm happy to be proven wrong. The science showed that there was something about these ultra-processed foods that caused people to overeat and gain weight. Now we're trying to figure out what is the mechanism, because this category of ultra-processed food is very wide, and if we can figure out what the mechanisms are, then we can give some information about how to avoid them, how to reformulate, potentially, ultra-processed foods. But right now, we simply eat too much. Thank you, Kevin Hall. And that concludes our first round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the question is, should we be eating more processed food? Now we move on to round two, and round two is more of a freewheeling discussion among the debaters. And uh, I just want to say what I think we've heard in the opening statement is one side arguing that there's something about processing a food that makes it bad for people, uh, particularly on the fo with a focus on nutrition, obesity. Uh, you didn't mention addiction, but I think that's also part of uh, your, the argument if you had had more time. Um, and the other side saying that that's nonsense and that it, it's, there's a, uh, unfair uh, associations being made with the term processing and ultra-processing and that, in fact, processing can bring benefit to food, particularly nutritious benefit. And I want to go to Amy Webb on that point. Um, Amy, your, your opponents don't... I'm not hearing your opponents dispute the argument that uh, pro ultra-processed food can be sort of juiced with, uh, with nutrients to improve, uh, to improve their health benefit the way the nutrient benefit the way that you mentioned you saw in the bread that, uh, that you like. But they're, argue, they're not arguing that that's not true. They're arguing that the other stuff that happens when food is processed to make it taste good, uh, added sugar, added fat, uh, potentially other additives, although Michael challenges that, but they're saying it's the other stuff that happens during processing that builds their case for the dangers of processed, ultra-processed foods. What's your response to that? Sure. Again, I'm, so I'm a social scientist, and uh, I also run experiments. And I can tell you um, that when you run studies, you've got a control group, and then you're testing for a narrow set of other outcomes. And what's missing is the knock-on effect. So let me continue with two examples, I, I sort of, two of the three examples from the beginning, um, in favor of why we need to broaden our thinking here. Um, the second one had to do with interpretation. Milk is a dairy product that's a group one food that is something we interpret as wholesome and good, and you can locally source it, it supports local economies. But what if wholesome, minimally processed foods are actually just as bad for us as what you heard from that experiment? 
Countless studies have proven that dairy products are actually not good for many people. It causes inflammation. In fact, there are ample studies showing that in women, certain bacteria strains of, uh, found in natural organic yogurt are shown to increase the growth of uterine fibroids, which are benign growths, but, but horrific. Um, they cause complications with, with pregnancy, excessive bleeding. They can be very painful and lead to hysterectomy. Now, if you were to run a study and you were trying to figure the outcomes based on calorie or based on choice, this is a variable that you would miss. And so again, we start to miscategorize or mislabel things. But the other point had to do with the application. I'm an endurance athlete. I am a long distance cyclist, and I have to be very careful about what I put into my body. I have to stay hydrated. You know, I can't stop for a nutritious home-cooked meal on mile 50 during a long ride. I rely on ultra-processed foods to perform at my peak. I eat gel. Uh, it's designed to quickly absorb into my bloodstream. There are natural flavorings. You know, it's, it's fine for vegetarians. And literally right now, the Tour de France is happening. The world's most elite athletes are literally fueled by ultra-processed food. I live a privileged life and I can choose to eat gel, but there are billions of people around the world where nutrition is a, and food scarcity is a real issue here. Um, so added nutrients, things that are shelf-stable, you know, uh, foods that can withstand supply chain interruptions, interruptions that food okay. in the form of a cereal is a let, lifeline. Let me, let me break in on you, Amy, uh, to come back to, to Marion. I, I didn't hear Marion in response to my question about the, the, the negative impact of some of the stuff that's done during processing, but I'd like you to pick up to that. In other words, added sugar, added fat, et cetera. Uh, I, again, I heard Amy making a case yeah, that things I, that I mean, good. I think we have a definitional problem here. My understanding of uh, my interpretation of ultra-processed foods is that these are foods that are industrially produced. Um, well, and, gel, the gel, I, I'm thinking, made, would be industrial. I, I'm sorry. The, the gel would be industrially produced, I think, and the, and the bread that Amy's talking about is large-scale production. So I don't think we're having too much of a definitional. Oh, I think we are, actually. But the, um, <laughs> the, the point is that the amount of evidence that links consumption of ultra-processed as opposed to other kinds of processed foods to poor health outcomes is really pretty overwhelming by this time. Um, it may be that these are correlational studies and they don't prove causation, which is why Kevin Hall's experiment is so important. But there's something about these foods that causes people to eat more, gain weight, develop type 2 diabetes, and all of these other con conditions. We cannot ignore this literature. It is extraordinarily large and consistent. And when you have a large, consistent body of research like that, you have to pay attention to it. And that's, I think, why we think that there's something about ultra-processed foods that we would be better off eating fewer of. Um, so, Michael, I mean, let me take it to you. I, you, you, you. You made a brief statement, I think, in defense of margarine. Um, and I happened to do a little research on what goes into margarine. So there is dairy product in margarine, skim milk, but also salt water, oil uh, derived from a plant, uh, plus emulsifiers, lecithin, which you mentioned, and flavoring and color additives. Um, there could be other nutritional inputs like omega-3. And then there are process, they go through processes called hydrogenation, agitation, pre-crystallization, crystallization, then it's tempered, then it's ready to go. As Amy said in the beginning, that sort of is, that's the, the picture of horror for a lot of people when they want to portray uh, processed food as a bad thing, that there's something that seems, seems like something very unnatural is being visited upon those ingredients. What's your defense of margarine in more detail? 
And, it, and it's meant, let's assume that it's up against butter. People forget that we have a regulatory system that has operated for uh, over a century now, and which doesn't allow us add things to foods which are dangerous for us. And when it happens, as I will mention, when it happens, and it does happen, they are removed or transformed. So I would have to say that everything you put into your mouth has a risk-benefit to it. And the question is, if these margarines lower serum cholesterol, do they, are they good? And yes, the, the answer is very much so. But could I comment on something that was said earlier on? Sure. May I? This idea that NOVA is the only classification of ultra-processed food is rubbish. Uh, Marion did say that you shouldn't ignore the literature. Well, they're ignoring it because there are three other categories. University of North Carolina's category, the Institute of Food Information Council's category, and the European Prospective Investigation into Cancer category. One study took all of these and used a single database from Spain, a very comprehensive and famous database, and they asked the question, let's recode this database according to each of these four definitions. And they did. And they asked the question, what's the impact on ultra-processed food on health? It was like snowflakes. NOVA showed an effect of ultra-processed food and obesity. None of the others did. The University of North Carolina found an effect on blood pressure. None of the others did. And in every single metabolite they looked at, there was disagreement. Now, they can say they're picking NOVA because it's the most studied, it's the most popular. That's just not science. That's not what's done. Okay, so I want to move on to a different topic rather than debate the definition of NOVA right now. Um, because Amy made a point that's a more, a more global point about what she was driving towards was that the, one of the benefits of processed food is that essentially, to put it simply, it's going to help feed the world, that there are places where the food... That this food being cheap, uh, calorie dense, et cetera, may be the difference between eating and not eating for, for certain populations. Uh, and I want you to take on that argument. No, I'm, I don't think anyone up here is arguing the fact that, you know, the food system that we have now, which has generated, according to NOVA in the U.S., you know, more than 50% of the calories that are available, has gone a long way to addressing many of the problems of nutrition um, that were, you know, really highlighted in the beginning of the 20th century, provide an ample supply of calories and protein and micronutrients and vitamins to a population to sustain them. There's no argument about that. That's convenient. It's cheap. It's labor-saving. There's all sorts of very positive aspects about ultra-processed foods. See, I, maybe I should be on the other side of the, the fence. But I think Don't go you, too far in. Yeah, but what I think you can't ignore is that there are some un unintended consequences. Um, when we have, you know, 4,000 calories per day available in our food supply in the U.S., we actually have wasted more food in recent years than we have eaten. It's, it's insane. Okay, let me, let me take it to Amy. Amy so, Amy, we, 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 did, we did explore your point, and your opponents, to some degree, conceded part of your point. But you, you again, have not addressed the issue that they talk about the stuff that's doing, you know, mm -hmm. causing to danger, obesity, uh, yep. certain food addiction, uh, problems of sugar, salt, yes. fat. Yes, yes. 
Yeah, it strikes me that my opponents want to have a debate about the future of the fast food industry and how they're marketing their products to people. I, I, don't, I, don't think that, I don't think that's fair to what they're saying. I think you would make that argument about potentially, I'm, I'm not sure what you'd say that about peanut butter, margarine, things like that, that it, butter is better and the less ingredients in peanut butter is better. Well, I mean, the margarine example is a really interesting example, right? Because we had a whole period of time where, you know, ultra-processed margarine, which is still ultra-processed, introduced trans fats into the food supply. But that was corrected. As, decades yeah. to, to get... But, but I want to I give Amy a chance to answer this question. I just want to clarify, you are not just arguing against fast foods. Am I of correct? course not. Okay, no. so Amy, they're not arguing. Just no, that may foods. be true, but unfortunately, the way that... that the, the, the contours of this debate are pushing into obesity and addiction. And quite frankly, nobody ever talks about being addicted to the gels that I, that I eat on a long distance ride. We have to broaden this conversation to make it more nuanced and we cannot hang our opposition to ultra processed foods on margarine, on you know, a few things that, that have been proven to be bad for us over time. There is a wealth of data and evidence supporting the fact that ultra-processed foods in the right circumstances and conditions are actually quite good for us. They're good for local economies, they're good for our bodies, and they are, they are good for the public. To obscure all of the other data and evidence that are out there because of a few experiments that are easy for us to conceptualize, I think, is really giving short shrift to our potential futures. You're a room full of researchers we have scientists that are looking into new ways to sustain us, and we are going to need optionality given what's happening with geopolitics, climate change, and instability within our global supply chains. Quite frankly, I'm not sure why we're even arguing this point right now. To me, it's very clear that the world benefits from having more ultra-processed foods when we think about them in the right ways. Okay, that sounds like perfectly teed up for a response from Marion. <laughs> yes. The food industry benefits from ultra-processed foods because they're among the most profitable foods on the market. What we have from Kevin Hall's experiment is evidence that these foods encourage people to eat more than um, they should. And this is now a national problem of public health importance, with three-quarters of American adults overweight by CDC standards. We really need to look at this. This is an enormous problem for our society. And if eating fewer processed foods is a way to approach that, I think we ought to look at that really seriously. Well, I, I think the, the, the opposition are being a little disingenuous with the facts. In Kevin's study, the people were offered uh, uh, foods with exactly the same calories, but they had to pick from the array of food in front of them because it's what's called ad-lib feeding. Well, the ones on the ultra-processed food, by chance, picked energy-dense foods. So they had a much higher energy density than the control group. Now, I admire Kevin's work. He's a good friend, he's trying another experiment, and the best of luck to him. It's very, very hard to do. But the facts are, energy density is probably a factor in, 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 in this regard. If I could just ask one question, why would toddler, commercial toddler food be banned? That's effectively what Nova is saying. Now you can wrap words around this. Baby food. Commercial toddler food. Oh, for heaven's sake. Not baby food, not infant formula, toddlers. You know the stuff you need in plastic jars for... Why is that being banned? I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S., 
More of our conversation when we return. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's get back to our debate. So a couple of points, Michael. Um, I think that rationalizing and explaining the effects is one thing, and then the observations are another. So we can all sit down and say, oh, here's the reasons why we obtained the results that we obtained in our study, but we actually have to do an additional experiment to prove it. And so what we're left with, we're left with a concept that ultra-processed foods as a category, a very broad category, too broad in my opinion, um, have some deleterious health consequences when you define them by the NOVA categorization system. There's no doubt about that. Now we have to figure out what the mechanisms are. So we can pick individual food items and ask the question, how can they possibly be bad? And we can have a rhetorical debate about how they might, may or may not be bad on their own. But we actually have to do a study. We actually have to do the science to try to figure out what it is about these foods that's bad, use that science to help reformulate products in order to make them better for us. There's a, and you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's all of these positive attributes I went over about ultra-processed foods, and we don't want to go back to the days where you know, one member of our family was sitting at home cooking for the rest of the, of the, of the family for, the rest of, uh, for a huge portion of their day. So uh, we need processed foods, and we need ultra-processed foods, but we don't need to eat more of them. Amy, um, Marion's a couple of times made the point that, uh, for her, part of the, what, what troubles her about the current arrangement in, in the world of uh, ultra-processed foods is that it's, it's uh, manufacturing and distribution advertising is controlled by multinational corporations whose interests are not the same as the people who are eating the food. I would like you to take on that argument. Absolutely. And I concede that point in very limited circumstances. The truth is that it's a big, wide world out there. There are plenty of global food manufacturers. Some of them make products designed to, that are designed to continue to build its market share. But there are plenty of products, again, I, I call back to this bread that's, you know, that I've got that's very much not designed to be addictive. It is challenging to eat, but it's nutrient-dense. Um, and it's a wonderful alternative to, to what else I might have. And again, this is why I opened with, with a, an argument about words and labels. We have a global food challenge. We have an impending global water challenge. So if we allow ourselves to be so reductive to point fingers at the typical agricultural companies or the typical industrial food manufacturers and, and demonize them without allowing ourselves more contours in the debate, we are you know, doing actual irreparable harm to our futures. There is no way to get around that. So absolutely, there are products that fit her definition, but there are also myriad products, not to mention many, many companies that are going in a different direction or offer alternative types of products. So this is really about opening our minds to alternative possibilities for our futures, which we will need. I, I want to just take the challenge to the other side. Are you opening your minds to alternative possibilities? Are you, are you failing to do that? I, I agree with everything that's been said. There's, uh, processed foods have their place in society, but to ignore the body of evidence that links this specific classification of foods with poor health outcome, it seems to me is to be, to be ignoring something that shouldn't be ignored. 
All right, that concludes round two of our Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Thanks to our debaters for that. And now we move on to round three, and those will be closing statements by each debater and speaking first in answering yes to the question, should we eat more processed foods? Here again is Michael Gibney. Uh, thank you very much. First of all, I'd like to thank my uh, partners for a very interesting debate. Um, Michael Pollan, the well-known American food writer, once wrote that you should never eat anything your granny wouldn't recognize. Well, between my two grannies, they raised 17 children, one on a carpenter's wage in the slums of Dublin, one on a shepherd's wage on a little cottage in the mountains. Their diet was monotonous, boring, and so on. If they got a day pass out of heaven and came down to earth to my local supermarket, they would believe there was a second heaven. Now, this idea of hankering after the past is uh, what I call a, it's a pastime of what I call the high priests of nutrition that tell us what and how to run our lives. And the idea that we'd all sit down together and eat a meal is a good idea, but the reality is that society has put blocks in our way. Time is a big issue, not just absolute time like long commutes and so forth, but relative times, like scheduling the ins and outs and coming and goings of a complex family that have different tastes. So convenience is a terribly important part of the modern food supply. Now, I have said that we are facing a future with challenges. Challenges with increasing global population, in the Western world, increasing aging population, challenges to the supply lines, food insecurity, and so forth. And if we're going to tackle those as, as well as climate change, we are going to have to innovate. And in terms of climate change, that's going to mean more and more plant-based foods. And I think we have to have confidence in our regulatory system and confidence that we can do it. I'd like to end with a quote from Charles Darwin. It's not the strongest of the species that survives, nor is it the most intelligent. It is the one that adopts best to change. Thank you. Next up, in arguing no in answer to the question, should we eat more processed food, making his closing statement, Kevin Hall. So I'm going to continue to spend your tax dollars at the National Institutes of Health trying to figure <laughs> out what it is about the ultra-processed foods and the diets that we give to people in these very controlled environments. What it is that causes people to overeat and gain weight spontaneously without trying to do so. That's going to take many years to try to figure this out. And I hope that the results of our research are going to help folks like you reformulate and make foods that are not going to have these negative health consequences. Of course, even if we figure out just the calorie intake side of things, doesn't negate the fact that ultra-processed foods have been associated with a variety of other diseases. And it might be completely independent, or it might be just a knock-on follow-on. But we're going to do our best to figure this out. Um, one of my debaters on the other side suggested that words really matter. And I agree. And so let's look at the words in the resolution of this, uh, uh, that we're debating here. The question is, should we, a nation that is already over-consuming most of our calories coming from ultra-processed foods, eat more? I mean, just logic suggests 
given the situation that we find ourselves in. You cannot vote otherwise than to suggest that this is an answer is no. It does not mean we are demonizing ultra-processed foods in doing so. That's just logic. You have to vote no. We already eat too much ultra-processed foods. We eat too many calories. And to vote otherwise is just illogical. Thank you, Kevin Hall. And speaking next from her remote location uh, and arguing on the yes side of the question, here again is Amy Webb. Thank you, everyone. And I, again, want to thank our opponents for a spirited debate. I want to tell you a quick story about my dad. Uh, My dad is 80. He lives alone, actually not too far away from where all of you are in Chicago. And when the pandemic started, he lost his support network in quarantine. His friend groups were gone. The restaurants had closed. That impacted his nutrition. He has a whole bunch of very serious medical issues, which means that he has to have a specialized diet. Thankfully, mercifully, I found a delivery service that creates pre-prepared frozen meals. They are delivered once a week, and they fit the various criteria and definitions regardless of which model that you're looking at for highly processed foods. Now, these particular frozen meals, uh, low in sodium, uh, low glycemic index, low in fat, and somehow still pretty tasty. Essentially, these are the same meals that my father would have gotten inside of a hospital under doctor's care. My point is, this is exactly what a doctor would have prescribed in another setting. But when we label a meal as ultra-processed or created by an industrial manufacturer, something about it feels wrong. You've heard me say over and over again that words matter. The easiest way to create order out of deep uncertainty and all of the change that we're facing is to pick a few villains, the big you know, food manufacturing companies, the, the big retailers, the big agricultural companies, you know, and a few positive examples to support those claims. But that's incredibly reductive. You just heard my opponent talk about logic. Well, what's harder here is flexible thinking. You heard my debate partner quote Darwin, those who, who survive are the ones who are most adaptable to change. Ultra-processed foods, it's a huge category. Some of it's bad. Some of it is the result of evidence-based, researched-backed food science and innovation and investment into emerging food technologies. Should we eat more ultra-processed food when we think about things in a logical way? The obvious answer can be nothing other than yes. Thank you, Amy Webb. And our Closing word, the last word goes to um, uh, Marian Nessel making her closing statement on the no side of the question, should we eat more processed foods? Well, obviously, I think no. Um, Ultra-processed foods is the most important concept to come along in nutrition in a long time. And I think that Kevin Hall's experiment is the most important nutrition experiment to have been done in decades. The 500-calorie difference that he found is extraordinary. Usually diet studies show a difference of 50 calories, if that many, and those are considered to be good. I'll give one example. I wrote a book called Soda Politics in 2015, and I wrote it as an advocacy manual for how to reduce consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages. Um, But I got, I certainly did not write it as a diet manual. Uh, But I got letters afterwards saying, I read your book, I stopped drinking sodas, I lost 10 pounds. I read your book, I stopped drinking sodas, I lost 20 pounds, 40 pounds. The record was 80 pounds. 
Cutting down on ultra-processed foods has a really good chance of helping us control what is an important public health problem. And I think we need to eat less of them. I realize that this is a challenge to the food industry, and I hope that it's one you will take on really seriously. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Nessel, and thank you to all of our debaters for this spirited debate. And now it's time to learn where you are on this question. After hearing all of the arguments, we'd like to ask you to vote a second time. We're asking you right now, go back to iq2us.org to cast your second vote. Again, iq, the number two, us.org. Now that you've heard the arguments, we want to ask you, where do you stand on the question we've been debating? Should we eat more processed foods? So I'm going to have the results in just a, a moment or two, but I, I, you know, this, this felt like a conversation that could have gone on for another uh, uh, several days. And, uh, <laughs> and so it, since we have a few minutes, I just wanted to, uh, to continue it. Um, something that did not come up, I, actually what I think I heard happening in this debate is the side that was arguing for more processed foods was saying, let's have more good processed foods, and the side against was saying, let's have fewer bad processed foods. Uh, and that seemed to develop a middle ground. But um, it was the more question that Kevin raised at the end. Um, and I want to take that to you, Amy, as you're a futurist. You know, we, we didn't talk a lot about what your career is, but you, you look down the road and talk about technology and um, uh, innovation and where things are going and problems that can be solved. And, yeah. and so more sort of suggests, I, I think, in a futuristic world, uh, it came up plant-based foods, uh, lab-grown meat, for example, which I guess everybody would consider, would everybody consider lab-grown meat highly processed? Yeah. But where would you fit that into this conversation, Amy? When I think of the word more, I'm thinking about optionality, so different types of. Um, you heard my partner talk about bioreactors. This is a way of not just creating plant-based proteins, but actually cellular meat-based proteins. Take cells from a chicken, incubate them in a bioreactor without any of the additives that we currently have in the commercial uh, meat supply system today, and out comes edible tissue that is by orders of magnitude better than what we have access to right now. There is a future in which more forms of ultra-processed foods um, actually accomplish the same goals as that locally sourced, locally grown food, but is more sustainable, better for the environment, and actually more you know, nutrition dense. We're, we have to get past this and have a more nuanced conversation. And these labeling systems, the classification systems, which aren't aligned to begin with, you know, we, we've seen problems with that in the fields of artificial intelligence, synthetic biology, you know, automation. We could go on and on. So I, I understand why they exist. But I, th I think we also need to you know, acknowledge that they can be incredibly problematic as we're doing this long-term planning for the future. Uh, I'd, I'd just like to hear the other side respond to the part of your argument where you said that um, a sort of lab-grown meat would have benefits for the environment. And uh, that really didn't become a big part of the conversation that we had. Uh, overall, the issue of uh, ultra-processed uh, ultra foods and the environment. But would uh, one of you want to take on the issue of lab-grown meat? Do you consider that a uh, good direction to move things in if we can do it? Um, I'd say the jury is still out uh, on the environmental impact. Uh, these studies are being done. I want to see the science on it. Um, so there's actually ample work done, not by big bioreactor, um, but all, all different types of researchers from all around the world. It's a, it's a more reasonable way, once we can achieve scale, to produce uh, protein that's arguably better for the resources that, that otherwise would be consumed. It's better for the animals. It's better for us. It's just different. Yeah. 
Um, Kevin, did you want to? Yeah, I mean, I think that part of the, the key there is arguably, right? So we actually have to do the science to figure this out. And what we've observed is that there are a lot of unintended consequences of you know, genuine, legitimate efforts to improve foods that we produce. And uh, we have to actually do the science to figure out if there are unintended consequences. But Michael, your argument is the regulatory process is there to catch these issues. Yeah, and it's worked fairly well. If you think of acrylamide, we don't have it as a problem anymore. Uh, trans fats are gone. Uh, BSE has been dealt with, I chair the European Committee on that, on that issue. Um, there are lots of examples of problems that came, we dealt with, and they're gone. And that will continue to happen. That's why we have a strong regulatory system. All right, I have the final results. So just to remind you, we asked you to vote before you heard the arguments and again after you heard the arguments. And what we're interested to look at is which side was able to change more people's minds. So here are our numbers. On the first vote, uh, and on the question, should we eat more processed foods, 52% of you here at the IFT conference said yes, 28% said no, and 20% were undecided. So again, the number that we're looking at is that change uh, between the first and the second vote. In the second vote, the team arguing yes for the motion, what their vote went from 52% to 52%, held absolutely <laughs> steady, flat, zero. Uh, let's look at the other side. Their first vote was 28%, and their second vote was 33%. So they gained five percentage points. They got 5% of you to change their minds. <laughs> So uh, congratulations on that. But I want to say this is not over. We are keeping this vote open uh, for millions of listeners on radio and on podcast and online who will also have a chance to vote and weigh in on this incredible debate. One more time, I want to thank the Institute of Food Technologists for having us here at Intelligence Squared. Again, I really want to thank these four debaters for the way you did this. And I want to thank all of you for attending and voting and applauding. So thanks. I'm John Donvan, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Institute of Food Technologists, for sponsoring this debate. This episode was recorded live at the IFT First Annual Event and Food Expo. IFT First stands for Food Improved by Research, Science, and Technology. Learn more about IFT and the future of the global food system at www.ift.org. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Clea Connor is CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Julia Melfi, Shea O'Mara, and Marlette Sandoval are our producers. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. We'll see you next time. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.